Blog Talk Radio. And now, shining the light of biblical truth, this is Truth Be Told Radio with your host, Melissa Canchola. That's right. If you just noticed, we got a new intro. And um, thank you for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. They get started with the lesson. This is the triune God will lead us home. And it's talking about Revelation 6, 17, 7, 9. And this is Bodhi Rockman. You have your Bibles with you. Would you open them to the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation? Let's look at Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. It's a poll taken a while back asking churchgoers what one book they would like to have, or one book they would like to hear preached through. And uh, number one on the list was the book of Revelation. And um, pastors were polled as to the one book they would least like to preach through. Number one on the list was the book of Revelation. Um, I have to confess, this is the first book that I read when I became a Christian. Um, It just sort of made sense to me. I wanted to find out how it all works out. So... Um, I read I read Revelation, and uh, I don't recommend that because <laughs> I was quite confused and terrified, um, and which is a pretty bad combination, right? What 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 are you reading about? I'm not sure, but it scares me. Um, but we uh, preached through this book. Uh, as a teaching team at GSBC, and it was absolutely the most um, rewarding time that that we experienced in the Word together with our people. Um, and so as we look here in Chapter 7, I want us to really concentrate on the last portion, beginning down at verse 9. Let me just give you a recap. First of all, explain to you that there are a number of ways that people look at the book of Revelation. And most the most common is a a futurist approach. Uh, look at Revelation uh, and the simplest way I can put it is that we believe that most of what we find in the book is is yet to come. It's going to come someday in the end. Um, there, is, there are, however, other approaches to the book of Revelation, and uh, the approach that I take um, is what's referred to as an idealist approach, and I believe that the book of Revelation is really seven parallel narratives, all explaining the same thing over and over and over again from different perspectives, and that really it explains what we experience between Christ's first and second coming. That most of what we find in Revelation is not necessarily future, though some is. Most of what we find in this book is absolutely present. 
um, and as relevant as anything else that we find in the Bible. Unfortunately for us today, that won't make a whole lot of difference as it relates to this passage of Scripture. But as we look at this passage of Scripture, I want us to concentrate on this thing. The triune God will lead us home. The triune God will lead us home. And this is one of those glorious parts of the text where regardless of the approach you take to the book of Revelation, we get to the same conclusion in this passage. Look, beginning at verse 9. Well, we can start at verse 1. Actually, back up even further and encompass the last verse of chapter 6. Chapter 6, and we'll look at some of this momentarily because it's relevant. Chapter 6 is a famous chapter in the book of Revelation because in the first portion of that chapter, we meet the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now, we've all heard of the four horsemen, and some of you older folks may remember, um, you know, you were not talking about Notre Dame football, by the way. Okay? But we've the four horsemen of the apocalypse. This, this, this is just a terrible and awful and frightening scene. And at the end of chapter 6, People are running and hiding, and they want the rocks to fall on them, to hide them. And then there's a question at the end of chapter 6. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? The day there is God. The great day of their wrath has come. This is God's wrath being poured out. And the question is, who can stand? Who could possibly survive this? And if you just read chapter 6, the obvious answer to the question is no one. No one could survive that. No one could make it through that. And that's the bad news that makes chapter 7 good news. Amen? And I want you to hear this today because there are some in our midst who believe that the answer to that question the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Some of you believe that the answer to that question is you. That you can stand in the great day of God's wrath because you're better than most people, or because you're smarter than most people, or because you've sinned less than most people, or because you've done more good than most people. Here's a news flash. That ain't the right answer. I didn't say that's the wrong answer. Uh-uh. I said that ain't the right answer. Sometimes correct English just won't get it. Amen? After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. Now, here, it, it, it bears explaining. There are a lot of people who, for example, you've heard the term flat earther, Right? You know, how Christians used to believe that the earth was flat. We were wrong about that. Now we're wrong about, you know, homosexuality, same-sex marriage, so on and so forth. Um, Christians have never believed in a flat earth. Christians have never taught a flat earth. You'll never find any theologian in Christian history who taught that the earth was flat. 
Nobody believed that. Nobody thought that. It's pure propaganda and myth. The number four in the book of Revelation is an important number. It's the number of the earth, of the totality of the earth, right? The number three, that's the number for God. Uh, the number six, that's the number for the beast and the false prophet. The number seven, that's the number of perfection. The number 10, the number of completion. The number 12, the number of the people of God, right? You have the 12 tribes in the Old Testament and the 12 apostles in the New Testament. So these, these, are, these are symbolic numbers that, that mean something. So having understood this throughout all of the history of, of Christianity, throughout all of the history of biblical prophecy, because Revelation is not the first biblical prophecy, it's the last. Amen? So we understood this since biblical prophecy was being written. So nobody came to this and said, wow, they're standing at the four corners of the earth. It must be a square. Standing at the four corners. They're standing and guarding the totality of the earth. Holding back the four winds of the earth. Again, symbolic language. When you read the book of Revelation, know this. It's always symbolic unless it tells you it's not. It's always symbolic unless it tells you it's not. That no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. It's pretty amazing. Chapter 6. It's as though all hell breaks loose. The end of chapter 6, who can stand? Now in chapter 7, the angels stand at the four corners of the earth, and not even the wind is blowing. It gets real quiet, real still. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Now, this answers the question. What's the question at the end of chapter 6? In chapter 6, there is this great picture of wrath. And at the end, the question is, who, who, who can stand? Chapter 7 is answering the question. Chapter 7 backs up and tells you why there are some who withstood. And there are some who withstood because before it all broke out, they were sealed. Do no harm to the earth and the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. It's a very important number. Remember I told you that there are important numbers. One of those numbers is 12, right? 12, the number of the people of God. 
the 24 elders around the throne. 12 Old Testament, 12 New Testament. It's a picture of the people of God from the Old Testament and the New Testament. Well, now we have 144,000, which is 12 times 12 times 1,000. People of God in the Old Testament times the people of God in the New Testament times a huge number. This is not a literal 144,000 people. One of the reasons we know it's not a literal 144,000 people is because the rendering of the 12 tribes that we see here isn't repeated anywhere else in the scripture. Dan is missing. And he's missing because of his idolatry. Manasseh is mentioned, but not Ephraim. Joseph is mentioned. Usually you either get Joseph if you're talking about the 12 sons or Ephraim and Manasseh if you're talking about the 12 tribes. Here we get a mixture. So we're not necessarily talking about the 12 sons. We're not necessarily talking about the 12 tribes. We're talking about a symbolic number here, 12 times 12 times 1,000. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah. There's the other issue. Judah's not the firstborn. Why do we list Judah first? Because we're talking about salvation history here. Judah is preeminent because he is the one through whom the Messiah comes. Judah's not listed first other places. He's listed first here. Because, again, this is a symbolic number, not a literal one, no matter how much the Jehovah's Witnesses insist that it is. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, and 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After, after this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. Further evidence that the 144,000 is a symbolic number. Because here you have 144,000, right, 12 times 12 times 1,000. And then right after that, I'm looking at a multitude. How many? He doesn't say, I'm looking at 144,000. No, a multitude that no one can number. It's a huge number. Who's in the huge number? The people of God from the Old and the New Testament, right? Hence the 12 times 12. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed, clothed in white robes? And where have they, and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. 
And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither shall they thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to the springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. The triune God will guide us home. It's amazing that we see God's work here described from really from a Trinitarian perspective. This one God who has, who has existed eternally in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, this perfect unity, perfect harmony within the Godhead, and this work being accomplished in the Godhead by the Godhead to our benefit, and it's our only hope. First we see that God the Spirit is the one who will bring us to glory. Notice this glorious throng. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every, now watch this, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. The number four represents what? The totality of the earth. So we have the four corners, the four winds. Now we have the four descriptors of the people before the throne. And amazingly, he doesn't just say, notice this. First of all, we're talking about that number, that 144,000 that we just saw. And I'm arguing that this number is symbolic. First of all, I'm arguing that it's symbolic because of its construct. Secondly, I'm arguing that it's symbolic because right afterwards we see a great multitude that no one could number. But thirdly, I'm arguing that it's symbolic because listen to these people. Where are they from? From every nation, not just Israel. All tribes, not just the twelve and peoples, and languages, not just Hebrew. It's everybody. Not just everybody. It's everybody. It's beyond everybody. Amen? He looks and he sees this multitude. John, who do you see? I see everybody. Where they from? They're from everywhere. This is what God is doing. Back up with me, if you will, to chapter 5. Beginning, we'll just back up to verse 6. It is so hard. The other, it is, here's the other thing about Revelation. It's, the, the book is doxological in its nature. It's just, especially this section. Praise and glory of God. You see two things in this book mainly. You see the wrath of God and the glory of God. And the glory of God through the wrath of God. Amen? Verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, there's that seven, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. 
and he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, 12 and 12, fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. It's the same picture. This is what God is about. This is what God is achieving. This is what God is accomplishing. This is the consummation of the covenant of redemption. That in eternity past, God the Father bequeathed to the Son a love gift. And this love gift was a people that the Father gave to the Son from every tribe and language and people and tongue or kindred. And the Son, because of his love for the Father, wraps himself in flesh, lives a perfect life, dies an undeserved death, so that through his active and passive obedience, he might impute his righteousness to this love gift of people that the Father had given him, and their sinfulness might be imputed to him, so that they might be received and declared as righteous, and the Spirit who is the very personification of the love between the Father and the Son, is now applying this redemption to God's people so that Christ might have the fullness of the reward for which he died. So God the Spirit will bring us to glory. How many of us? All of us. And that's the only way we get there. The only way we get there is the declaration of the Father, the redemption of the Son, and the application of the Spirit of that redemption to us in time. That's the only way. That's the only way. That's your only hope, beloved. You have no other hope of being a part of this glorious throng. And that's why this throng is a worshiping throng. Amen? That we, we get there and we worship. We get to heaven. Why, why do we worship when we get to heaven? Because we don't get there ourselves. Amen? God does this. And so we worship him. All created beings worshiping him. And then look at what happens here. And verse 10 through 12. And crying. Sorry. Back in chapter 7, beginning verse 10. And crying out with a loud voice. Isn't this interesting? This thing crying out with loud voices. Crying out with a loud voice. One loud voice. Listen, I don't, I'm, I'm not a fan of the, the whole sports analogy thing, but sometimes... It just works. So I played football at Rice University. Rice University's smallest Division One school in America. Literally, smallest Division One school in America. Um, 
2,500 undergraduates. I mean, smallest Division One school by far. The next, the next school in size in, in all of Division One, I, I think, is around 6,000 students. So just, I mean, little old, little old bitty, tiny school. And when I was there, we played football in the Southwest Conference, right? Now, SEC used to be SWC, but we'll leave that alone. Okay, so I saw this conference, and, and one of the schools in the Southwest Conference, now an SEC school, Texas a and And it was, it was something else to play the Aggies. And with us, it didn't matter if we played them at their place or ours because, you know, College Station was close enough to Houston that even when they played us in our stadium, it was more of them than there were of us, right? So it just was huge. And when you need to think about that, it's one thing to play in a stadium that's crowded, amen? And you just hear the roar of the crowd. The Aggies have this thing called yell practice before every game. And they practiced, they practiced their yells. And the first time you experienced this, again, we'd all, we'd all played football. We played football and we all played in front of big crowds of people before. But never in my life had I heard 50,000, 60,000 people who spoke in unison so clearly that you can hear them as though it were one voice. And you could be in a crowd, 100,000 people, it's just loud, right? We just go and we just, we just right here, we play football, man. Yeah, how many people, that's just loud. But when they start saying stuff and you can hear them enunciate every word, you have a tendency to go. Get social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page at Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O dot C-O-M. Truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Remember... By sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you'd like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as truth, the letter B, then told radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B. T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is truth, the letter B only, not B-E, told radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M smilesandstuff.com So stay social with us and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio.
just uh, my Twitter is now called X. I hate the name. No, Twitter's better, but whatever. Uh, next one I'm going to do for you is this is from Answers and Genesis. Public schools aren't neutral. This is Ken Ham, CEO of Answers in Genesis and the popular Art Encounter attraction. Many people think that secular means neutral. So public schools, because they're secular, are neutral. But there's actually no such thing as neutrality. The Bible says if someone isn't for Christ, they're against it. Again, there's no neutrality. Everyone has a worldview. This worldview is like a pair of glasses that determine how you view the world. And the ultimate worldview in public schools is atheism. That's right. They're largely teaching generations of young people to think according to an atheistic worldview. When government schools throughout Christianity, they didn't become neutral. And no parent should pretend otherwise. Discover more about a biblical worldview and our family-friendly Noah's Ark attraction when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. Get equipped at AnswersRadio.com. A wife and a husband. Are you smelling what I'm stepping in? Then here's another battleground. A husband is only a husband if the husband has a wife. And a wife is only a wife if the wife has a so a wife can't have a wife. And a husband, watch this, can't have a husband. And, and them fighting words today. They absolutely are. So we haven't even finished the first verse. And we see here that we're at war. But dare we forget that we're also dealing with the idea of wives as women and husbands as men, which means that we actually believe that there is something ontologically unique about manhood and about womanhood. A marriage is made up of a wife and a husband. The law of attraction as a Christian. It teaches that you are God. Let me read this to you from The Secret on page 164. It says, you are God in a physical body. You are spirit in the flesh. You are eternal life expressing itself as you. You are a cosmic being. You are all power. You are all wisdom. You are all intelligence. You are perfection. You are magnificence. You are the creator, and you are creating the creation of you on this planet. Now, let me correct this. Jesus is God in a physical body. Jesus is spirit in the flesh. Jesus is eternal life. Jesus is a cosmic being. Jesus is all power. Jesus is all wisdom. Jesus is all intelligence. Jesus is perfection. Jesus is magnificence. Jesus is the creator. This is the serpent's lie, the first lie ever told to mankind that we could be like God. I Next, this is from Ligonier Ministries, and it's called Should Christians Keep the Sabbath? Well, we have to discern what we mean by Sabbath. Because technically speaking, Sabbath, Shabbat in Hebrew, 
according to the Old Testament and how God established it at creation, which it is a creation ordinance, very important point, he established it on the seventh day of the week, which is, of course, our Saturday. Now, most Christian scholars have agreed that what God established there as a creation ordinance was fundamentally a day of rest in the cycle of one in seven. That it, it's secondary that it happened to be on the seventh day. That the point is, is that it was a day of rest in the cycle of one and seven. Because, you know, according to calendars and so on, and as things change throughout the year, what is actually the seventh day, the sixth day, the fifth day, and so, so forth. But in the New Testament, of course, we see that Christians were gathering together on the Lord's Day. And we believe, we understand that the Lord's Day was the first day of the week to celebrate and commemorate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, as John was in prayer on the Lord's Day, as we see people in Acts of the church gathered on the Lord's Day from time to time, uh, the, the impression we're given is that the Christians in the first century understood and saw that the first day of the week was really the, the, the Christian Sabbath or the Christian day of worship. And so, Today and throughout history, Christians have looked at the first day of the week as the Christian Sabbath. Now, whether you call it the Lord's Day or the Christian Sabbath or simply the Sabbath is, in my mind, secondary. Uh, the New Testament calls it the Lord's Day. Um, I think theologians have rightly, such as Westminster and much of our forefathers, have said, well, it's the Christian Sabbath. It's the Christian day of rest and worship. And I think that's perfectly fine. Um, and so should we celebrate the Christian Sabbath? Should we celebrate, commemorate, keep uh, the Lord's Day? Absolutely. Uh, and I would even say that because it is a creation ordinance, it's, it's really not up for grabs. It's not an option for us. I would say that Christians are really called to have that day, the first day of the week, as the Christian Sabbath, as the Lord's Day, a time for rest, a time for worship, a time for fellowship, a time for, you know, mercy ministry, and even for those deeds of mercy and necessity, doctors, firefighters, police officers, nurses, and so on. Um, but that I would even add this, even we as pastors, is our day of rest and worship as well. And that's something that is misunderstood, I believe, by a lot of pastors. Uh, sure, you might get another day off in the week. Fine. But the Lord's Day is your Lord's Day. It is your Sabbath as well. It is our day to celebrate. It is our day to fellowship. It is our day to worship, and it is even our day to rest. And even though we don't always get to rest as much as we might like, our rest in doing the things that God has called us to do is joyful rest. Now, I preach typically three times a Sunday, twice in the morning and once in the evening. And here we are right now on a Tuesday night, and I'm actually still tired from Sunday. Um, my voice is still catching up from Sunday night, and I was tired coming into Sunday. But I really, I really do believe this. I believe that my work in ministry and preaching and serving the Lord, and, and quite frankly, not just preaching, it's greeting people between services and, and all the rest, answering questions and talking to folks, all that is, is a part of ministry. It's a part of service. But I don't hold what I do any differently than any Sunday school teacher. You've taught Sunday school for over a decade. Um, I don't hold what I do over deacons and what other elders do, what 
ushers do, what, what other teachers are doing. We're all doing ministry. I just get to help lead in celebration along with the choir, along with our chief musician, along with other pastors, along with the musicians. I'm helping to lead in the worship and lead in the celebration. Um, and so I think we need to see it, all of us, as our day of rest and worship because it's a creation ordinance that God has established for history throughout all time. Okay, before I even get into today's video, I just want to say that everyone whose eyes you meet were made in the image of God. This includes LGBTQ plus people. I pray for this group often and I have a lot of love for them, but loving them does not mean I have to affirm or agree with everything they believe. And pronouns are one of them. You know what, this is an odd time to be alive, let me tell you. It's 2023 and 10 years ago, you know what? You know what? No, actually five years ago, people never would have even asked what your pronouns are. The way that this ideology is swept across the country is absolutely insane to me. I am mostly floored at how so many people are bowing the knee, so to speak, to this ideology. But then it occurred to me, I think I get it now. I think I understand the math instinct to do what's easy instead of to do what's harder and morally right. And it has to do with the posture of our hearts. The Bible says that our hearts are deceitful. And what this means is that people identify what's true based on what's inside, their heart, their feelings, not actually what's true. This is not to say that every single time that we do something that we like or enjoy, that it's somehow deceitful or wrong. That is not what I'm saying. I'm talking about when people look to the self as the authority for what's good and proper. And when we do this, a lot of times it's in a self-interest kind of way. The point is, is that the Bible mentions this, and it's a good point because we want to satisfy the flesh, in other words. We want to fit in. We want to people please and go with the crowd. Why? Because it's easier and it's safer. But what I don't think people get is that there's a price to pay for this. So when people say, I don't get it, it's just pronouns, I'm trying to be polite or inclusive, and besides, it's such a small thing. Why should something as tiny as using someone's pronouns be such a point of contention? Just use them and stop being a judgmental freak. I don't think they realize the long-term implications of such a small act. And I heard some thoughts, some arguments this last month uh, that really hit it home for me when it comes to this issue that showed me that using pronouns is uh, its no small issue. And there are two responses that I want to share that I thought really succinctly expressed why pronouns are no small issue. And no, nobody is being bigoted. Nobody is being uninclusive or intolerant. Nobody is being homophobic or transphobic or whatever phobic you want to come up with. This comes down to not living by lie. Now, this first argument is actually one I heard from my uh, best friend. So uh, thank you. You are real one. And I'm positive she heard it from the source that's uh, much smarter than me or her. So, um, uh, But imagine for a second, if you will, um, that you are somebody that has a lot of issues with the trans contagion. The trans ideology is running rampant, and you think it's a total cage stage activist playground, okay? You don't agree with the surgeries. You don't agree with the social contagion, how it's getting in the schools, the, the trans species stuff, you know, the big stuff, all right? But pronouns, eh, who cares? Not a big deal. If someone wants to be a he, her, a they, them, a unico, unicorn, why does that matter? I'm not going to make a big deal out of this, you say, and I'll submit to whatever they want to be called. Okay, here's the issue. Imagine you're across from a minor or a person that wants to have breast removal surgery. 
because she thinks that she's a boy and wants to go by he, him pronouns. You actually think that this is wrong, that she will regret it. So you, being polite, approach her using he, him pronouns. You explain that he is making a mistake by taking hormones so young, and he should not remove his breast. And the girl looks at you straight in the eye and says, but I'm a boy. I need to feel at home in my body. Thank you for affirming this by using my pronouns. You then cannot be against anything that she is wanting to do for herself or why anyone else shouldn't be able to do it for that matter because you're affirming her very identity to do so. This is so important. It's like an upside-down pyramid, all right, when it comes to the foundation of the problem with this. As a woman, I think this is particularly true of men. Think about it. Once you use the pronouns, it's difficult to say she shouldn't be able to go into a woman's locker room. She can't play in women's sports. No, she can't be woman of the year. It's very similar in my mind to say approaching someone with a terrible illness and say they identify as healthy and want others to affirm this, even though they're clearly sick. You affirm to be polite. You then cannot turn around to this person you're affirming as healthy to their face and tell them that they should really see a doctor. It's an unfortunate contradiction. It's a denial of reality. Why is there a denial of reality to be seen as tolerant or having good manners? It's literally the emperor's new clothes ideology, really, when it comes down to it. So this is an argument based on logic, whether you're a Christian or not. Now, the second argument is definitely logical, but more for Christians than why this is such a piercing and contentious thing, even though it seems so small. I'm actually not too sure of the original source, but I'm thinking it was the great Nancy Piercy or Rosaria Butterfield, uh, but who I heard it from was my good friend, Elisa Childers. So for all I know, this is original to her. Uh, but when I heard this argument, I thought it was very eye-opening. Okay, so the idea of using pronouns is like a cultural god, an idol. And when we go back to the first century, we typically compare the plight of Christians as being uh, highly persecuted and martyred. But what we may not consider is something that was equally hard, which was the daily choices that Christians had to make in regards to the little compromises that Christians were faced with. Okay? So, for example, one of the earliest creeds of uh, Christianity was Jesus is Lord. Right? This seems this seems like nothing today. Like, no doubt, of course we believe that. Um, but that was a big issue in the first century because in the first century Roman Empire, Caesar was Lord. Rome was sympathetic, very syncretistic in this way to be all beliefs and religions. You could believe just about whatever you wanted, just as long as you proclaimed Caesar as Lord and took a tiny pinch of incense and put it in a bowl for Caesar. My understanding is they didn't care if you believed it or not. They just wanted you to participate so you wouldn't be seen as like a traitor causing trouble in society, in the state, you had to fit in. So naturally, of course, Christians took issue with this because Jesus is Lord. So if a Christian went to someone's house, there was a household god or idol set up, and it was very customary to just do a little bow to the god when you came over. Christians couldn't give a pinch or a bow because they were so convicted that this was false worship, and them participating in any part of this was against everything they believed. So in this way, pronouns are like a little pinch of incense. Pronouns are the little bow. It wouldn't have been much for them to just give a pinch and take a bow. Why didn't they? Why would they care so much about something so small? It keeps the peace. You're just being polite. What's the big deal? If we give in to these little things, okay, when the big things come, what's to stop us from bowing? We've already bowed to Caesar. So why should the compromise stop there, especially when it makes us seem tolerant and likable? Now, let me pause here for a brief moment and reflect on this a little bit more when it gets personal or complicated, especially when you're a Christian with a family member or close friend going through this. I want to say 
that I feel for you, okay? And I understand that sometimes this puts you in a very complicated position at times. And maybe I'll cover this in a later video in more detail, but I think that there must be a very, that must be a very difficult thing to deal with. And especially if it's something like your relationship with your child, or like if that's at risk. And honestly, if it were me in that position, I'd be torn too. Uh, but it would be very difficult for me to pretend that this is normal. Uh, it's like the emperor's new clothes, as I mentioned before. We all know, okay, we all know. We're just pretending not to know while we all know, but we're pretending not to. <laughs> you know what this reminds me of? This is going to sound strange, but it reminds me of when singers look sync. Like I think of Britney Spears or J-Lo, and you know what? All my late 90s and early 2000s peeps, you know what I mean? It's really rare when pop stars sing live, and we all know this. We just pretend that they're actually singing, and we're okay with it. As long as they're on beat and don't pull an Ashley Simpson, then nobody cares. You know what? I remember that. I remember when she messed up her lip sync, and people were so outraged. I'm so confused by this. I'm like, you're all mad about something we all know they all do, but because she messed up your flawed fantasy of how this is supposed to work, you canceled her? We all just pretend that we paid 100 bucks for a show to watch them fake sing really well, and we will we'll be okay pretending this in, until they get caught? Okay. All right. You know what? I digress. You get the point. It's just really awkward that we are playing one big game of pretend. So these are some of the best arguments I've heard so far. But what do you think? Do you have any others that you think are better? Do you agree? Do you disagree? Do you think I missed something? Let me know in the comments below. Yeah, is Melissa Story? And that was from YouTube. And next we got this is RC's full, and it's from the Holiness of God series, and this is called The Importance of Holiness, the Holiness of God with RC's full, here on Tributory. Our Father and our God, when we approach this subject of your holy character, we know that we are embarking an impossible task that even this moment we are standing upon holy ground ground that were not for your abiding mercy and grace would open up beneath our feet and swallow us into the pit so tonight we ask may we beg you for a double measure of your grace and mercy upon us as we seek to understand these things that are so important to our understanding of you. And we invoke the presence of the Spirit of Truth who is at the same time the Holy Spirit that he may assist us in this endeavor. So we ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. I was a senior in seminary, the Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. It was a fall afternoon, and I remember vividly that I was studying by myself in the library. And I had a stack of books in front of me, and as you know, a library at a theological seminary is a place that is quiet as a morgue. No one is ever allowed to talk or chatter. It's a hushed silence. 
And suddenly my attention was distracted by this uh, uh, murmuring that started running spontaneously through the stacks and through the open tables in the library. And people began to, to disrupt the whole atmosphere of the place. And people were leaving their seats and their desks and rushing out into the corridors of the, of the seminary. And I didn't know what was going on until somebody, somebody said something out loud that was unmistakable. And they said this, someone has shot the president. You can imagine an announcement like that and what it would do to, uh, to people's normal daily routines. I rushed outside and like every other American, I glued myself to the radio and I listened to the moment-to-moment -moment bulletins as President Kennedy was fighting for his life momentarily and then, of course, the announcement came through that he died. And for the next day, indeed the next weeks, the next months, the people of the United States of America were preoccupied with this tragic moment in our history of the sudden death of a popular president. And then later a book came out that was entitled, Johnny, We Hardly Knew You. It called attention to the fact that his his presidential term was indeed brief. But any time, ladies and gentlemen, that the chief executive, the leader, the king, the prime minister of a nation passes away, it is a time of solemn, serious trauma for the nation. Well, that was true in Israel as well as in the United States. For in the 8th century, a king came to the throne in Jerusalem and began to reign at 16 years of age, and he reigned in Jerusalem for over 50 years, imagine, over half of a century. And he wasn't the most famous king of Jewish history or the most important king of Jewish history, but he would certainly rank in the top five. His name was Uzziah. And what Uzziah accomplished in his reign was to bring the last significant spiritual reform to the people of the land. And when he died, and he died incidentally in disgrace because he was sort of a Shakespearean tragic hero who violated his own principles of ethics and spirituality in the last year of his life. But when he died, it sort of signaled a turning point, a watershed in Jewish history where from that day on, the spiritual life and vibrancy of the Jewish nation went into a serious decline from which it never recovered. I think it's significant in the providence of God that four years after Uzziah died, the city of Rome was founded. And a cultural change took place that would shape the whole future destiny of history. But in the midst of that struggle of that nation, a man was called of God to the sacred vocation of being a prophet. And some would call him the greatest prophet in Old Testament history, a man who was not only a religious person, but he also was a statesman in his own right. As he spoke to several kings in the course of his ministry, he was the prophet who said, that someday in the future, a virgin would conceive and bring forth a child, and his name would be called Emmanuel.
It was the prophet who said that in the future, the servant of the Lord would come and bear the sins of his people. His name, of course, was Isaiah. And the record of his call to the role of the prophet is found in the sixth chapter of the book that bears his name, and I'd like to read the first part of that record for you now. It says in chapter 6 of Isaiah, verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him were the seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their, voice, their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Now I want you to notice in this brief passage that I've read here, that Isaiah locates this experience that he has in the year that King Uzziah died. And we don't know for sure whether what Isaiah beheld was an ecstatic vision that took place in the temple in Jerusalem, or if, in fact, what Isaiah saw was a glimpse into the inner sanctum of heaven itself. I prefer the latter interpretation. I'm persuaded, for technical reasons I won't get into here, is that what happened was that God opened the curtain. He removed the veil from heaven itself. And as John, centuries later, on the Isle of Patmos, would get a glimpse of the interior of heaven, Isaiah the prophet saw the Lord enthroned in heaven itself. Now, if you see in your Bible, you'll see that it says here, in the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and exalted in the train of his robe filled the temple. If you look at your Bible, you see the word Lord, and I'm sure it's spelled capital L, little O, little I, little B. Is that true in your Bible, sir? If you go down a couple of verses to where the song of the seraphim where it says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Do you see that? You see that same word Lord is spelled capital L, Capital O, capital R, capital D. How many of you noticed that in your text? Okay, it's a very common thing we find in English translations of the Bible, and it's not a result of a typographical error. But rather the translators are trying to signal to us that something is going on here that's a bit unusual. That even though the same English word, Lord, is here in the text, the fact that, there's, that they are printed differently indicates that there are two distinctly different Hebrew words behind the text. Anytime you see capital L, capital L, capital R, capital D, you can be fairly confident that the Hebrew term that is being translated is the name Yahweh, the name that God revealed to Moses in the Midianite wilderness when he said, I am who I am. That's the sacred name of God, the holy name of God, Yahweh. Earlier when we see this word, Lord, capital L, little O, little R, little D, it translates now a different word, 
which is the Hebrew term Adon Adonai. And that is probably the most exalted title that the Old Testament uses for God. He's given many titles in the Old Testament. This is the supreme title that is given to him. We think, for example, in Psalm 8, where we read, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all of the earth. There it's, what, O Yahweh, our Adonai, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. And again in Psalm 110, we read this, The Lord said to my Lord, sit thou at my right hand. A fantastic statement to be found in the Old Testament where David now describes Yahweh talking to someone else and ascribing to that third person the title Adonai, the title that had always been reserved for God himself. It's no accident, ladies and gentlemen, that the most quoted and alluded to Old Testament verse in the New Testament is Psalm 110, where Paul tells us that Jesus is given the name that is above every name, the title Lord, Adonai, the name that originally belongs to God and to God alone. Now, the meaning of the term Adonai simply is this, the sovereign one. So do you see what's happened? The king is dead. There is this time of uncertainty and mourning in the land and the Jewish people. And Isaiah comes in the name of his people, and he looks and beholds into the interior parts of heaven itself, and he sees not Uzziah, not Hezekiah, not David. He sees Adonai, the supreme sovereign, enthroned in heaven. I'm convinced, personally, that what he is saying here is a pre-incarnate glimpse of the enthronement of Christ himself and his full majesty. I saw the Lord seated on the throne high, exalted the train of his robe, filled the temple. Oh, I love that phrase, the train of his robe, filled the temple. You know, in ancient days, the clothing of monarchs was a measure of their status. An international protocol would respond to the various levels of the magnificence of their clothes. If a king wore ermine, that was incredible. If he wore sable, that was even better. Mink was sort of second or third grade level. And those that came with canvas robes, uh, they had to sit in the back of the summit meetings of the kings. I remember seeing one of the first international television broadcasts that was taking place in America was a viewing of the coronation of Queen Elizabeth. And the commentators went on and on about the pomp and the circumstance that only the British can bring to such a celebration. And the magnificence of her gown, as she came to approach the throne in Westminster, she was, and uh, before she went to Buckingham Palace, they had several pages who had to lift the train of her gown as she made her entrance into the abbey because that gown trailed for several feet behind her 
as she professed. But you hear what, what Isaiah is saying here, is that when he saw this vision of the heavenly king, he saw a king whose splendorous garments billowed out over the sides of the throne and so went on full back along the sides of the, of the temple, around the back entranceway, and spilled out and completely filled the entire building. And what he is seeing here is a visual experience of majesty. It is focused in the magnificence of the garments. And then he said, over the throne and above Yahweh and Adonai, the Lord, were the seraphim, each with six wings. This is the only reference in Scripture to these creatures who are called seraphim. Some have tried to identify them exactly with the cherubim, but I think since the Bible distinguishes, we need to distinguish them. We know very little about them except that they are part of the heavenly host, those beings that were especially created by God to serve him day and night in his immediate presence. And if we read the description that Isaiah gives of them, it seems as though they appear in almost bizarre fashion, for we're told that they have six wings. Let me just stop here for a second and make a comment. When God creates creatures, he does it with a certain creative economy. He doesn't waste material. He has an amazing, extraordinary ability to create whatever he makes in such a way that it is adaptable and suitable for its environment. God makes fish with gills and with fins because their natural habitat is in the water. He makes birds with wings and feathers because their environment is in the air. And so when he creates angelic beings, whose specific task and function in creation is to minister to him in his immediate presence, he constructs them in such a way as to make them fit for their environment. And hence we are told they are given two extra sets of wings. With two, they cover their face. Think of it that these angelic beings minister daily in the immediate unveiled presence of Almighty God, whose glory is so refulgent, so piercing, that even the angels have to shield themselves from looking directly at his face. Remember the story in the book of Exodus, when Moses, representing the people of God, was summoned by Yahweh to Sinai to receive the law of God. And you remember, Moses went up there into the clouds and was sort of swallowed up on that mountain. And the people waited for days after days, and they were apprehensive and stricken with anxiety as they wondered what had happened to their leader, had he been swallowed up by the wrath of God on that mountain like Korah and his people had in the rebellion? Would he return alive? 
What would the message of God be if he did come back? And so they waited in fear and trembling for Moses' return. And while Moses was on the mountain, he spoke with God. You remember the conversation? If I can improvise a little bit, it went something like this. Moses said to God, he said, God, I have seen some magnificent things in my lifetime. You've shown me uh, the burning bush. I've seen the plagues by which you devastated the Egyptians. I saw you part the sea and bring a whole nation of people through on dry land. I've seen you provide supernatural, miraculous provisions from heaven for us hungry people. So now let me have the big one. Please, let me see your face. God said, Moses, you know better than that. You know it's my word that no man shall see me and live. You can't see my face, Moses. Here's what I'll do. I'll carve out a little niche in the rock over here, and I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. And then I will cover you, and I will pass by, and I will let you see my backward parts, the Hebrew reads, the hindquarters of Yahweh. But my face shall not be seen. So God put his servants in the cleft of the rock, and he allowed his glory to pass by. And ladies and gentlemen, for a split second, Moses got a backward glance of the refracted glory of God. And what happened? When he came down from the mountain and the people saw this figure approaching in the distance, they became all excited for the return of their leader, and they rushed forward to greet Moses. And suddenly they shrunk back in horror and fell on their faces, and they began to plead with Moses, say, Moses, Moses, cover your face. They couldn't bear to look at him. Why? Because Moses' face was shining with such radiance and such intensity that it was blinding the people. And what the people were seeing, ladies and gentlemen, think of it, was merely a reflection on a human being's face from a backward, instantaneous glance of the glory of God. The angels themselves cover their eyes in his presence. And with two wings, we are told, they cover their feet. Now, the Bible doesn't explain to us why it was necessary for the seraphim to cover their feet. I can only guess, and I will venture a guess at this point. And that is the feet, for angels as well as for men, is the symbol in the Bible of creatureliness. We are told that we are of the earth, earthy, that our feet are of clay. When Moses met God in the Midianite uh, uh, desert and wilderness. What was the first thing God said to him? Moses, Moses, take off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the ground whereon thou standest is holy ground. He asked him to bear his feet, the sign of his creatureliness, the sign of his submission 
before the Holy One. And so even in heaven, the angels cover the sign of their creatureliness. But as fascinating as I may be, ladies and gentlemen, with the anatomy of the seraphim, these are really minor considerations with the text here. What is really important about this text, as far as I'm concerned, is not the structure of the angel, it's the message of the angel. Listen to what the Bible tells us, that with the two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. I was standing over there before we began this series, and those who were watching it by videotape missed the, some of the things that we did by way of lead-in, and one of the things that this group of people enjoyed was the singing of the classical church hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy. And I was listening to you as you sang that. I cannot hear that, that hymn without chills running up and down my spine. It is magnificent, isn't it? And I think about the angels and everyone casting down their golden crowns beside the glassy sea. That everything that we have that is worth anything is something we would gladly lay at the feet of the Holy One. And how this church so triumph, this hymn so triumphantly celebrates the majesty of God. But as I was listening to you sing it, I thought, as beautiful as it sounds, imagine how it would sound sung by a choir of angels. And that's what Isaiah saw. The heavenly host above the throne of God singing to each other in antiphonal response, a single word repeated over and over and over again, holy, holy, holy. The Lord Almighty, heaven and earth is full of his glory. Friends, there's something here in this text that as English-speaking people, we could read a thousand times and miss every time. There's something very Jewish about this text. In the English language, when we want to call attention to something that's particularly important, to give it emphasis, there are different ways that we can do that in print. We can underline words or italicize them, put them in bullface type, put little quotation marks or brackets around them, or fill the page with exclamation points. How I hate exclamation points when there's not an exclamation. Even my editors do that. I find as a final draft, I'll see, I'll read these things and they'll put exclamation points in sentences that aren't exclamations. And please don't don't think so poorly of me to think that I don't know any better about the use of exclamation points. They do that and it drives me crazy. But that's what we do with emphasis. Well, the Jews did the same thing. They did all of that underlined, bold-faced, italicized, but they had another technique to call attention 
to something's particular importance. And it was a simple technique of verbal repetition. I think, for example, of, of the Apostle Paul when he's writing to the Galatians and warning of them of the dangers of departing from the gospel that they had received from Paul. And he said, I say unto you, that if anybody preaches unto you any other gospel than that which you've received, even if it's an angel from heaven, let him be anathema, anathema. Let him be damned. That's a strong statement that comes from the pen of the Apostle Paul. But he doesn't stop there. He immediately goes on to say, Again I say to you, if anyone preaches unto you any other gospel than that which you have received, let him be anathema. Jesus was fond of using this device of repetition to make his points. Now, remember, Jesus was a rabbi. That meant that he was a theologian. He had a school, and he had students called disciples or learners who enrolled in his school. And he was a peripatetic rabbi. That meant that he walked around, and as he walked, the disciples literally followed him. When, they, when, when Jesus said, follow me, he meant literally, walk around behind me. And what they would do, it would be this way. The teacher would give his recitation. He would lecture as he walked down the road to Emmaus or wherever. And the disciples would follow along behind him and commit to memory the things that the rabbi taught. Now, ladies and gentlemen, Every teaching that ever came from the lips of Jesus Christ was important. But even our Lord took time to call attention to things that he regarded as being super important. And whenever he would come to a point like that, that he wanted to make sure his disciples never missed, he would preface his teaching by saying two words. He would say, truly, Truly, I say unto you, or the older translation, verily, verily, actually what he said was, amen, amen, I say unto you. You recognize that word. It comes directly into English, and we say, all the people said what? Amen. But we say amen after the teacher teaches or after the preacher preaches. It means it is true, we believe it, and so on. Jesus didn't wait for his disciples to confirm the truthfulness of what he was saying. He started his sermon by saying, amen, amen. That's like the captain of the ship getting on the intercom and saying, now hear this. This is the captain speaking. When Jesus repeated that word, saying it twice, he was underscoring its importance. Ladies and gentlemen, there's only one attribute of God that is ever raised to the third degree of repetition in Scripture. There's only one characteristic of Almighty God that is communicated in the superlative degree from the mouths of angels where the Bible doesn't simply say that God is holy or even that he's holy, holy, but that he is holy, holy, holy. 
Bible doesn't say that God is mercy, mercy, mercy. But love, 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 or justice, 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 or wrath, wrath, wrath. But that he is holy, holy, holy. This is a dimension of God that consumes his very essence. And when it is manifest to Isaiah, we read that at the sound of the voices of the seraphim, the doorpost, the threshold of the temple itself, shook and began to tremble. Do you hear that? Inanimate, lifeless, unintelligible parts of creation in the presence of the manifestation of the holiness of God had the good sense to be moved. How can we, made in his image, be indifferent or apathetic to his majesty? God alone is holy. And what I want to do in this series is to try to, to describe what that means and what the reaction of Isaiah and other people historically is when the holy appear. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice that something and someone in this unholy universe it's not only somewhat, but altogether, holy, holy, holy. Impart to our hearts the joy of the seraphim for that truth. Amen. Is your child a missionary? This is Ken Ham, author of the book on biblical parenting called Will They Stand? When I speak to parents about parenting and school choice, I often hear something like this. Eyes and, and they're not humans, they're 100% they're not humans. 
by now. It's more than an hour after that bright light. Officers meeting up with the caller and his family. What did you see? listening and join us next time as we shine the light of biblical truth on Truth Be Told Radio.